come to the preaching of God's word. So take a copy of God's word. If you're using a Bible there in the pew rack, you want to turn to page 878. We're continuing hopping around here in Luke's gospel this summer. The, the title of this Sunday morning summer series is To Seek and to Save, and that title comes from verse 10 here of Luke 19. We'll look at verses 19, uh, verse 1 through 10 of Luke 19. And what we have been doing is that in Luke's gospel, he draws some things out uh, that the other gospel writers, Matthew and Mark and John, do not. Each gospel does have their own unique sections, and then there's other parts that they share the same stories and teachings. But in Luke's selections, the things that are unique to Luke, uh, there's something of the wonder of God's grace that Luke wants us to get a hold of. And one of the ways that, and we've noticed this in the parables we looked at and the stories we looked at, this is a true story that we're going to consider this morning, is that Luke likes to get our attention and teach us something by doing a surprising reversal in the story. He takes what is unexpected and he shows us Jesus then welcoming the rejects and the outsiders into his kingdom. Surprisingly, Jesus welcomes notorious sinners over the religious elite. Quite often in Luke's gospel, Jesus welcomes the despised over the well-respected. And here, this seems to be the kind of capstone of these stories that are unique to Luke and his teaching. It's the beloved story of Zacchaeus. Now, many of us who grew up in church singing the song and, and knowing the story of Zacchaeus, we think of this as, as a beloved story, as we should, but we for, might forget or might not understand that of all the people that Christ saves, this one might have been the most despised. This might have been the one that most people would have hated. No one wanted to see this reversal both the religious elite and the common Jew, really, they didn't want to see Zacchaeus in the kingdom of God. And here Jesus welcomes him in. And it's for that reason that Luke gives us this account so that we too would marvel at the grace of God and be drawn to the Savior. So before we read God's word and hear it proclaimed, let us ask for his help in prayer. Please join me in prayer again. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And it tells us of the living word, your son, who you sent on a mission, who willingly came to seek and to save the lost. The living word took on flesh, the one who is the very gospel himself. And he rescued sinners like Zacchaeus, and like us. So may we see, may we read, may we receive what you would teach us in this passage. That your son Jesus would be glorified, that we would grow in grace, and that we would glorify him in our community seeking to spread the good news of the gospel. We ask all this by your spirit's help and in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1 through verse 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. That's Jesus. Verse 2. 
And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on the account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Recently, I found an old picture of myself um, from about 20 years ago. And in this picture, I'm, I was preaching. It was at a youth event 20 years ago. It was a Saturday night. I remember very clearly, my text for that night was Matthew 28 through 30. Come to me, all who are labor all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and so on. And by God's grace, as far as I can recall, that message was faithful to Jesus' intention and teaching there. But every preacher has their dreaded archives. The sermons that you wish you could do over, and the original version you wish would just evaporate into past history, and that everyone would forget. The sermon recordings that you wish that would end up in the trash folder and deleted forever, never to be recovered. Well, the story of Zacchaeus is one of those for me, and maybe for some of you as Bible teachers or Sunday school teachers too, you may see this as well. I'm pretty certain that as a youth minister, on probably more than one occasion, I just completely botched this story. How? Well, Maybe you can be a little bit kind and sympathetic to my, my immaturity and, and poor uh, exegesis from the past that I taught this story about seeking Jesus and Zacchaeus being the example to seek Jesus. And you can imagine how I would make such an error. Room full of high school students. Look at Zacchaeus. Look how desperate he is to get to Jesus. He'll lay aside his secular CDs, his girlfriend, all his reputation on his sports team, and he'll humiliate himself. And he'll run on ahead and he'll get in that tree just to see Jesus. Would you do the same? What is holding you back? Come to the altar right now and give your life to Christ. That was probably how it went, guaranteed. But I was reading it wrong. I ended the passage too soon. I ended with Zacchaeus seeking Jesus in the tree and missing the whole point. In verse 10, where Luke gives us Jesus' mission statement, it may be the summary verse for all of Luke's gospel. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. 
the point of the story is that Jesus is the seeker in the story. Jesus is the seeker. Now, Zacchaeus is seeking him, but it is behind Zacchaeus seeking that Jesus is the one who's coming for him. The old hymn says it like this, and many of you have experienced this after coming to Christ. And I quote, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but the point of the story is that Jesus was on a quest for him. You may say, well, shouldn't we encourage sinners to seek Jesus? Of course, but we need to do so according to the truth of Scripture. And so in saying that Jesus is the seeker and the first and foremost seeker in this story, don't you see that it doesn't de-incentivize seeking Jesus. No, it shows us something about him that we say, oh, here is the one who is worthy of seeking. Here's the one who is beautiful and wonderful. Here's the one that I need. In the mystery of the Holy Spirit's working in the life of the unconverted, it's when we tell of Jesus the seeker that we are drawn to him. Now, this passage, this story, these, these 10 verses, it, it moves in two scenes. And the, each scene has the same kind of elements. They, they walk through the same steps. It begins there at the beginning in verses 1 through 5. You have the crowd. Then you have Zacchaeus' response. And then you have Jesus' pronouncement. And then in the second half there, beginning verse 6 or so through the end, you, then, you, you hear from the crowd again. And then Zacchaeus' response, and then Jesus' pronouncement. So I think a good outline is, is two sections. So we'll consider this passage under two sections. In verses 1 through 6, we see Jesus the seeker. And then quite simply, in verses 7 through 10, I want us to think about Jesus the Savior. And what a powerful Savior he is. Jesus the seeker. And the first thing to, to notice about Jesus the seeker is that he is the providential seeker. Providential seeker. How does Zacchaeus end up in the tree? Well, one way to answer that, and a very truthful way to answer is that God put him there. Now, it's not as if God caught him away and all of a sudden he wakes up in the tree, but it was in God's providence that Zacchaeus finds himself in the tree. And what do I mean by providence? If, you, if you're new to church or, or new to Reformed theology, providence is, is a theological word to what the Bible teaches that God governs everything. God governs all of our actions. God governs all his creatures. And he does so by his most holy and wise purposes. And God is all powerful that he is the type of God who can govern all things for his glory. And here we see that in God's providence, this isn't just random coincidences that Zacchaeus ends up in the tree. Now it's true that Every page of scripture tells us something of God's providence and his sovereign purposes. But this isn't meant to be a, a lazy sermon point to just point out God's providence in the passage. I think when we come to 10 and we realize that Jesus has been seeking this man all the time, we see that Jesus is the providential seeker 
of the loss. So what's the setting? It happens in the town of Jericho. At this point in, in history, in the, the ancient Near East, Jericho was a, a, a pretty fine place to live. It was a, a, a port of entry from the east and to the west. It was a well-known toll place there in Palestine. And so this was a place that there was a lot of resources. It was a, a wealthy city. It was, at this point in history, it was something of a, of a garden city. It was a desirable place to live. It was the kind of place that the streets were lined with sycamore trees, that it was intentionally planned and laid out. And don't think the high sycamore trees that are difficult for you and I to climb in our day. This is a different type of, of tree with low-hanging branches and plenty of fruit, fruit and beautiful big leaves. So in God's providence, this man, Zacchaeus, lives in this well-to-do town that the type of town that has sycamore trees lining the street. But it's not just that, that Zacchaeus has found himself in a very profitable, though not a very popular occupation in Jericho. We're told that he is a chief tax collector. Well, the tax collectors were despised because these were typically these were Jews who then got in connection with the Romans, the occupying force there in Palestine, the empire that was over the Jews. And these Jews then cooperated with the occupying force in collecting taxes. But in a place like, like Jericho, where many people are coming, going, many trades and many goods are coming through, when tariffs are unfixed, this leaves the door wide open as it did with most tax collectors for fraud and extortion. The Romans didn't care how much the tax collectors took as long as they got their portion. And so there were big payoffs in being a tax collector, and Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. And so by his neighbors, he's now thought of as sinner supreme. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but now we understand why the crowd isn't too ex uh, excited that Zacchaeus has come out of his, his tax collecting offices. That as he's trying to make his way through the crowd, they're like, don't let this guy through. That they lock arms and saying, look, he bullies us around. He takes from us. There's no way he's just going to get his way. The crowd keeps him from Jesus. And that forces a man who would have had position and stature in his community to do something that's unheard of, to run on ahead and then climb up a tree like a child in order to try to see Jesus. You see how providence is coming together and how God is putting this man in the tree. And part of the reason he has to go into the tree is that as one New Testament commentator described him, he says, he's elfin in stature. He's short. As someone whose mother is four foot 11, I have great sympathy for this man. To be just, we rarely ever get physical descriptions in the gospel, but most likely in Jesus' day, they weren't like the tall Dutch friends we have here in Michigan. Chances are when someone was short, they were four feet and below. This is a small man. And in God's providence, his parents, that's the genetic code they passed on to him to get him up in that tree that day. And why is he there? Well, twice in the passage it says he wants to see Jesus. He wants to know 
who he was. Literally, who is he? Now, how did this supreme short sinner come to this place of seeking Jesus? Was it just curiosity? Here is this traveling rabbi, itinerant preacher, making his way through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And maybe he just wants to know what all the stir is about. Maybe after a very successful career of fraud and extortion, Zacchaeus begins to have a sense of emptiness in his soul and how wealth has not satisfied his longings. Or could it be that this tax collector has heard rumors about this certain rabbi who welcomes tax collectors? Maybe it's not just that Jesus is coming. He's heard that Jesus is a certain type of man. And in Luke's gospel, he's been setting us up for this, the way that Jesus interacts and welcomes the tax collectors, those who are thought of as sinners by the Jews, those who are thought of as the worst sinners. And it began in, in Luke chapter five when Jesus called the tax collector to be one of his own disciples. Levi, also known as Matthew, who the first gospel bears his name. And so maybe Lazarus, being a chief tax collector, knew Matthew and heard about the change in his life and the rumor has gotten to him. Maybe he's heard the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, in which they both go into the temple and they're both praying. And the Pharisee is recounting all God's kindness to him and not making him a dreadful sinner like that tax collector. And the tax collector can't even lift his head and is beating his chest and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then the punchline where Jesus says, which one went home justified? The tax collector. Maybe in God's providence, rumors of such a rabbi have come to this short man, Zacchaeus. Here we see that Jesus is a sovereign Lord of history is working on the behalf of those in which he would call to himself. That it's no mere providence that we are to view the world, but we are to see the world in God's saving providence. It's what we see when we step back and realize that Jesus was on a quest for Lazarus. John Piper has said it this in his book on providence. In the case of true Christians, God's providence is a saving providence. And he goes on to say, God is seeing to it that his people, his bride, the church, come to faith in Christ, repent of sin, experience forgiveness and justification and reconciliation with God as adopted children, walk by faith, be transformed into the image of Christ, live lives of love and good deeds, attain the resurrection of the dead, be perfected in glory, inhabit a renewed creation, and then spend eternity glorifying God by treasuring him supremely with ever-increasing joy. Well, the God of the Bible is not leaving this to coincidence or happenstance or might, but in those in whom he would save, there's a saving providence. And for us as believers, seeking to go out as Christ's disciples on his commission in the world, we have to remember this. Because it means that no day is a mundane, ordinary day. 
It means that every day and any day could be a day in which God's saving providence is coming to the sinner next door or the sinner in your home or the sinner that is your roommate or coworker or to the lost sinner behind you at the grocery store. That each and every day we can go with a sense of wonder saying, God, what are you doing? Where have you already gone ahead of me? And who are you calling to yourself? And would you use my testimony? Would you use my simple witness to be the conversation that someone gets intrigued and curious about Jesus so much so that they would leave behind their dignity, that they would leave behind their wealth, and that they would run on ahead to seek him? In the mystery of God's providence, would you use a conversation between me and my neighbor over the fence or the neighbor's kid who keeps playing in my front yard and keeps coming on my lawn even when I don't want him there? I recognize him, but God, you've, maybe you've brought him there. And this child is drawn to this Christian family because something's different, that he's experiencing pain and he's experiencing great sin in his own home and he sees something of, of the light of Christ and so we should share the hope. Remembering that prior to conversion, it's not our job to identify who the elect are. Who is it that God would save? No one would have said, Zacchaeus is a prime candidate. This is an inquirer. This is a seeker. It's not until he encounters Jesus that that is evident, that Jesus was seeking him, drawing him to himself, effectually calling him to himself. So it's not our job to pick out who it might be. It could be anyone. And so every day is filled with wonder and delight that Christ, would you save my neighbor through my witness? There's a story that goes from the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Early in his ministry, there's a revival that happens in Sandfields. And in this great revival, there's a notorious sinner that is converted. His name was William Thomas. He also had the nickname Staffordshire Bill. And this was a mean, nasty drunk in his neighborhood, in his community. Even so, that good drinking men didn't associate with this man. That's how nasty and mean of a drunk he was. He used to sell fish from a cart. And each day, the pony that was pulling the cart would have to pull him home because he would pass out before he could finish selling all the fish that were there on his cart. And one day, he is in earshot of someone in a pub who says that there's this preacher who said that no one is hopeless. And Staffordshire Bill said, no one. Interesting. And so he shows up twice to the Sunday evening chapel to hear Martin Lloyd-Jones preach, but he can't work up the courage to go in Think about it. A scandalous, notorious sinner that no one liked in the neighborhood. And then the third time he shows up on a Sunday evening, someone from town says, are you coming in, Bill? Come sit with me. And he goes in and he hears the gospel and his life is transformed. Are you coming in, Bill? They used his personal name. It's kind of what Jesus does here at Zacchaeus. He calls him by name. Jesus isn't just the providential seeker. He's also the personal seeker. 
And what a shock it would have been to Zacchaeus as he is now trembling in this tree, wondering who is looking at him, laughing at him, mocking him. And Jesus stops, as the whole crowd stops, and he calls him by name. See, to be clear, it wasn't that Jesus was impressed with the lengths that this man went to to come to him. Jesus knew his name. He was already coming for him. And he calls him by name and says, I must go to your house. You must come down from the tree. How did Jesus know his name? I think there's two possible options. Jesus is here standing in the office of prophet and by the spirit of God, he knows he's looking for Zacchaeus and that God has prepared the way. Or Matthew, his disciple, said, hey, when we, when we get to Jericho, there's this bad dude. No one likes him. Short guy. Despised by all. Terrible sinner. His name's Zacchaeus. Let's go after him. Zacchaeus was seeking to know who Jesus was and he's surprised to learn that Jesus already knew him. Zacchaeus didn't track down grace, but was found by grace and rescued. And if you're not a Christian, here today, watching online, listening to this, why are you? Why are you here if you're not a Christian? Why are you listening to this or watching right now if you're not a Christian? Could it be that you have found yourself up in a tree and you can't explain it? And Jesus is calling you by name and saying, sinner, come to me. He is the providential seeker. He is the personal seeker. But then we see his power to save in verses seven through 10, Jesus the savior. And then that salvation comes with it, a powerful transformation. There we see Zacchaeus gives away so much money. Why does he do so? Well, to be clear, this is evidence of his salvation. His restitution isn't what makes him worthy of salvation or merits or earns him salvation, but the restitution and the generosity that come from him is because he wants to. We gotta think about that. We gotta think about the joy that has hit this man. But to really put it in context, we gotta remember that this man is hated not just by Pharisees, but by all the crowd. See, normally in these crowded situations with Jesus, there's kind of a split in the crowd. And this was, was in verse seven, we see what was a pro-Jesus crowd that are, they're all following him. As soon as he calls Zacchaeus down and says, come in, I'm coming to your house, the crowd turns on Jesus. Well, why is that? Well, to go into someone's house means to associate with them. It's not just a mere acquaintance. It means that you're, you're linking yourself to that person. You're associating with them. And here Jesus is, went from an uninvited guest, which is one kind of like social no-no, to being the uninvited guest of the local pariah, the man that all despise. I mean, the closest uh, comparison to, to drive it home would be someone like, like Bernie Madoff, who defrauded his investors through a Ponzi scheme of most likely billions of dollars and did it heartlessly for decades, ruining people's lives, 
ruining charitable foundations that were reliant on his foundation and gifts. And so Jesus saying, Bernie, come on down. I must go to your house. And think about the reaction of the neighbors as they see Zacchaeus and Jesus now linked. They watch Zacchaeus grow up. He didn't really grow up too much. He stopped growing at an early age, but they watched him. And they watched him go from one nicer tunic to the next. And they watched him go from, from frozen food to fast food to only three-star Michelin restaurants. And the whole time they're watching us, they're thinking that he's doing that with our money. He's doing that with what he has defrauded from us. He is taking what belongs to us and he's spending on himself. And Jesus says, I don't just come for the desirable and the respectable. I come from the, the undesirable. And Luke has set us up in his gospel for this. Because right before this account, as Jesus is entering Jericho, do you remember what happens at the end of Luke chapter 18? At the end of Luke chapter 18, the crowd is around Jesus as he's coming into Jericho and there's a blind beggar crying out, Jesus, son of David, seeking healing. And the crowd keeps the beggar away, doesn't let him through. And Jesus parts the crowd. He goes to the one that no one cared for, that no one wanted to make way for. He goes to the one who's ostracized, marginalized, and oppressed, and he saves him. And as we read Luke's gospel, it's like, what a wonderful savior. Going to that poor, blind beggar that no one else would care for, no one else would help, that everyone else is keeping down. Jesus lifts him from his situation. And then Luke sets us up and says, but what about, what about the bad guy? What about the powerful what about those in charge? And what about those who've abused their power and their position and have harmed many and others? I could transform and save them too. That's the kind of savior that he is. And there's someone here that you need to hear this today because you've carried the guilt of your sin against others and that you will not allow any gospel relief because you recognize how your sin has harmed others. And you're right. There are many grievous sins that we have treated with one another. Abused, neglected, molested, harmed. And Jesus is a savior can transform even you. You're right to recognize that there's no debt that you can pay to others. See, when, La when Zacchaeus is making restitution, it is not paying his full debt. He does this restitution in this passage because he recognizes that there is someone who will pay his debt. Because when we sin against one another, it's not just against one another. That when you sin against someone who bears the image of God, it is against the God in whom image they bear that you are sinning against too. And so you are right to feel the weight of your sin against others. And Christ says, I can save and transform those sinners as well. And those who have been the victims 
of those sort of sins and crimes, those who have suffered the abuse. Jesus is the hope of your abuser and those who harmed you and sinned against you. And that Jesus' blood is enough for their sins and it's enough to heal the wounds in which have been inflicted upon you. He has a mission for the undesirable. He has a mission for those who others would say would be impossible. This is how powerful the transformation that Jesus brings into the sinner's life. Because here, this story, Luke didn't just set us up with the blind beggar. Back in 18, before the blind beggar, there was another story in which Zacchaeus is the foil to. Zacchaeus is the foil to the rich young ruler. You remember the rich young ruler, the one that everyone says, here's the guy that Jesus would save. Jesus points out that this rich young ruler loved his riches more than God. And Jesus said, go and sell all to be my disciple. And the rich young ruler can't do it because it says that he loves his possessions. And what is Jesus' disciples' response? He said, how can anyone be saved if, if, if the rich can't be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible man is possible with God. Look what Luke has teed up for us. Saying here is the impossible sinner, the one that cannot be saved. In man's eyes, I can do it. And I can transform his life. And here is the evidence of a transformed life in verse eight. And just quickly, we'll point out some of the, the ways that we see this powerful salvation that comes to Zacchaeus and the evidences. We see in his life, there is a, a severing of the slavery to wealth. That the pursuit of wealth has become this man's idolatry. It's also become his bondage. And he can't free himself of it, but Christ can. And so he is able to give and gladly, not because it's demanded of him, but because his heart's been transformed. He's been set free from his idols. As Sinclair Ferguson has put it so well, it is amazing what falls out of your hands because it has fallen out of your heart. His hands are open because his heart's been set free. We see the severing of his slavery. We also see the sacrificial serving. He has experienced extravagant grace and it is expressed in extravagant repentance. And he has a view towards the poor. Before making restitution, it's not just those whom he's defrauded. He also freely gives half of his belongings to the poor. Not demanded of him, but now it is what his heart desires to do. His sacrificial serving here expressed in his generosity is a mark of true repentance. The power of God transforming this man's life. And lastly, if there's the severing of his slavery, the sacrificial serving, there is the sincere delight in the law of God. What do I mean by that? Well, those whom he's defrauded, he insists that he pays them back four times. In terms of restitution in the, the Old Testament, there are several laws. Here for himself, Zacchaeus has picked the most severe. There were some that would say that he would just pay back the amount and a quarter. But here he has chosen four times. Why is that? Well, 
Exodus 22.1 says, if a man steals a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall pay four sheep for a sheep. Here, a love of self has been replaced with a love of God and his law. There is sincere delight in the law of God. And so he freely and willingly, in his repentance, obeys. It's the mark of a transformed life. And we need to be clear that his repentance and restitution isn't making the case for reparations. And what do I mean by that? It's not what Luke had in mind in this passage. Luke could have addressed the institution of taxation and and exploitation that Zacchaeus was a part of, but that's not what's important to Luke. Luke is important to show us this man's heart has been changed. And here is the hope of the world, Jesus the Savior, transforming sinners. There's a wonderful story of the revival in, in Belfast in 1921. It was a revival that the Lord used the Irish Presbyterian preacher and evangelist, W.P. Nicholson. And one of the ways that this revival showed up in Belfast is that in the shipyard, the men who heard the gospel, many of them were converted. And so what did they do? Well, coming to Christ and convicted of their sin, they sought to make restitution. And so they started returning the things that they had taken from the shipyard, goods and tools. And so much so that they had to build a shed for this. And they called it the Nicholson Shed based on the minister that the Lord was using in this revival. And so many things were returned, not by any command or not by any any law set down, but because these men's lives were changed, that they had to put a sign up on the shed and said, we're full, no more room. The entire shed was full. Here it is. We want change. We want, we care about those who hurt and suffer because of the sins of others. But as the church, we have to remember the Great Commission is the hope of the world for the oppressed and for those who would be accused of being the oppressor. For those at the top, those at the bottom, and everyone in between. Only the gospel is the hope of the world. Only Jesus can bring about the transformation that we would long in communities and neighborhoods and nations in homes and families in dorm rooms and workplaces. And Jesus announces this transformation. He announces it to the crowd in verse nine. And Jesus said to him, but he does so in such a way that everyone would have heard it. Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Those who knew Zacchaeus had a verdict against Zacchaeus and it was a good verdict. In their eyes and in justice, they said, this man can't be counted among the sons of Abraham. He is corroborated with this occupying Roman Empire here. He has forfeited his right to be a son of Abraham because of his sin. And Jesus says he's restored, he is reconciled, he is brought back. This 
one who was born into the covenant, who forsaken the covenant, Jesus has brought back home and declares that he is not just a son of Abraham by lineage, but by spiritual heritage now, sharing the faith of Father Abraham. And there are some here that in this point you can relate to Zacchaeus. That you have a spiritual lineage that you have walked away from. You've benefited most of your life from the ministry of the church, maybe baptized as a child, maybe baptized as a young adult or teenager. You've benefited from Sunday school, vacation Bible school, preaching, worship, the care of elders, small groups, youth group. And then at some point, you took all that the Lord had blessed you with and turned your back on it and pursued something else. For Zacchaeus, it was this ill-gotten gains and wealth. And you have forfeited what was to be your spiritual heritage, the promises of the gospel signed and sealed to you in your baptism. And Jesus says, I'm coming for you. That you weren't, you chose your lostness and I'm coming to find you and transform you that you faked your way through church for many years and many Sundays and your heart was not there and your heart was not for worshiping your Savior. He says, I'm coming for your heart. So the very thing that you faked and lived as a hypocrite for many years, I'm gonna transform that heart and you're gonna find yourself in a place where you can't help but love me and turn and repent. Jesus is still taking wayward sons and daughters and turning them into sons and daughters of Abraham. Jesus is on a journey here at the conclusion of Luke's gospel. We're coming close to the cross. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, and that's the journey he's been on. And then in 1911, we are told that he is now near to Jerusalem. This is one of the last acts of Jesus' earthly ministry. The finding and saving and transforming of Zacchaeus. And he'll follow through with that mission. It will take him to Jerusalem in which he will die for Zacchaeus' sins and he will rise again His sacrifice and his gift and his death and resurrection is enough for every sinner here today. The point of the story isn't to try to be like Zacchaeus, but in Zacchaeus to see your great need and fall in love with the wonderful Savior. Let us pray. Our great God, Father, you are such a good God that you would send Jesus on such a mission and your son is such a glorious savior that he would embrace such a mission to leave the realms of glory 
to seek and to save undeserving lost sinners like Zacchaeus and like every person in this room. So this morning we embrace the Savior and we say, please, Lord, as your people, we want to be on that mission with you. As you have commissioned us to go forth, may we go forth with hope knowing that you are a powerful Savior and that you can save any. I pray for those who are here who have not trusted in Christ. That today they would hear their name called by the Savior, turn from their sin, and find mercy in him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.